0: Faith and Reason Podcasts. New Media for the New Evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com. I'd like first of all just to thank Dr. Lee for inviting me here and and also for writing this excellent book in collaboration with uh, with Robert George you know, as men- was mentioned also by dr. Miller I think this is probably if if not more than probably the best in the sense of deepest most rigorous systematic philosophical approach to understanding of marriage as a conjugal union that has yet been published. So if you haven't read the book, it really is worthwhile. I don't, you cannot find, I think, anything better to give you a, a deep, systematic, rigorous understanding of what marriage <coughs> is a, and why that matters. Now, I, I'm not gonna attempt to do a kind of comprehensive overview. I'm gonna focus just on the section that deals with marriage and the law, although in doing so, uh, we'll probably overlap slightly with some of the things that uh, the previous two presentations mentioned, but hopefully in a complementary rather than repetitive way. So first I think it's helpful in framing this to take the claims of those who are in favor of the redefinition of marriage to include same-sex couples and examine those claims. So the, the basic popular claim is A claim in favor of marriage equality. But I want to ask is marriage equality the real issue? As Dr. Miller mentioned, the 14th Amendment Equal Protection Clause is often invoked in favor of redefining marriage to include legal recognition of same sex couples. That clause states that no state shall deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. I agree, actually, that this clause does not have the broad scope that most people today think that it does within the courts and uh, legal community. However, given that the judges and and lawyers do think it has that scope, let's take it at the the value that that most of the legal community gives it right now in terms of precedent and so on so even if we take it in that way which i do think is false on an originalist or textualist basis it still doesn't at all imply that we ought to that there's a lack of equal protection of the law in failing to give legal recognition to same-sex unions because what equal protection means is that laws should treat equal things and persons and situations equally. So marriage equality would mean treating all marriages equally in law. That means that to know what marriage equality requires, you need to know what marriage is. So the marriage equality argument, in a sense, begs the question, the real question, which is what is marriage? Obergefell actually doesn't ground its decision in the Equal Protection Clause. It grounds its decision in the Due Process Clause, kind of making up this this idea of a fundamental right to marriage in the Constitution. And so I agree, constitutionality is another matter, that at least from a moral perspective, marriage is a fundamental right. But again, this begs the question, what is marriage? Because the fundamental right is marriage, not to have any kind of relationship called marriage or legally recognized as such. So then, the question what is marriage is really the question on the table, and here I want to propose in a way that I think is is complementary to the analysis in the book that in our culture we're faced with two competing models of marriage, and that it's not really about same sex marriage versus opposite sex marriage, but rather about a view of marriage that could best be defined as sexual-domestic partnership, of which same-sex marriage is simply one instance, but which, in fact, many heterosexual couples have bought into, if not a majority, and then a competing view, which I think is the true view and the view defended in the book, which is the view of marriage as conjugal union. So I'll give you two real-life cases that I think exemplify the contrasting views. So this sexual domestic partnership view of marriage is a view in which adult emotional satisfaction is the aim. And I think this view is well illustrated by Carol Riddell and John Partilla, a couple whose marriage was featured in the vows section of the New York Times about five years ago. What got them that honor, I guess you could say, of being on the front page of the Vow section of the New York Times was the unusual sort of situation surrounding their marriage. They had met at their respective children's uh, kindergarten. While they were, of course, married to other people, they began to fall in love, and they decided eventually to divorce their spouses and marry each other. Here you see them you know, at the, at the wedding kind of party with their children and uh, respective children, and then... Together at the at the after party, the article reports that their thought about their thought process was the following: that their options were either to act on their feelings and break up their marriages, or to deny their feelings and live dishonestly. And so they said, Well, we can't deny our feelings and live dishonestly. We know it's they recognize their children will be harmed. They recognize their spouses were going to feel harmed, but they just thought they couldn't deny the depth of their feelings for each other, and so in their understanding, they took the courageous jump to uh, go against public opinion and what other people thought they should do and break up their marriages and follow their their feelings in order to then marry each other. So the features of this emotional model of marriage, of marriage as emotional a sexual domestic partnership are again, as Dr. Lee mentioned in his kind of summary of the sort of false idea of of marriage that's prevalent in our culture, that it's it's an emotional union primarily. Sexual intimacy is involved but is extrinsic really to the union because it's simply a means to emotional union. It involves cohabitation, living together. And it involves long-term and usually exclusive commitment. Again, I say long-term and not permanent and usually exclusive also for the reasons that Dr. Lee pointed out, that if it's really an emotional union, there is no good argument to require permanence since emotions are not permanent. uh, And emotions may or may not be increased uh, in intimacy and so on by exclusivity. It it simply depends, a matter of of preference of of the couple. So the contrasting model, the model of marriage as a conjugal union, I illustrate with the story of Kim and Cricket Carpenter. Some of you may be familiar with the movie The Vow, which takes and somewhat, I think, um, messes up their their story. It's much better in real life. There's a book called The Vow, which gets, it's uh, well, the book is entirely true and, and is worth reading and gives you the full story. So this is... Uh, this is Kim Carpenter, and this is his wife Cricket, and what is really noteworthy about their story is that they, they met, they fell in love, they married all within a span of about a year and a half, and shortly after their wedding, they were driving to, I think, celebrate the Thanksgiving holiday with Cricket's family, and they got into a very serious car accident and cra- crashed with a semi truck, and you see this is their car. It was not, uh, not a mild accident. And so the result was that both were injured, but Cricket in particular was very, very seriously injured. She was in a coma, suffered from permanent brain damage, and when she came out of the coma, though she recovered many of her memories from the past, the year and a half, about the, actually about the two years immediately prior to the accident were completely erased. And so what that meant was that this man who had been hanging out at her bedside, uh, this weird guy, you know, hovering over her, was a complete stranger to her. She had no memory of her husband. Because, again, she had met him within that window that now was erased from her from her memory. Of course, her parents and family and friends told her, yes, this is your husband, yes, you would do love this man, or you did love this man, and they showed her the pictures, they showed her the wedding videos, they hoped some of these things would spark her memories, but nothing ever came back. So here was this man to whom she knew she was married, but of whom she had no memory, for whom she had no feelings. And, of course, for for Kim, this wasn't easy either. The social workers, in fact, advised him to get a divorce. They said, look, she doesn't even really like you right now, and uh, this is going to be a rough ride, You realize that as long as you're married to her, you're responsible for her hundreds of thousands of dollars in medical bills. You have been out of work for a while because you were injured and now taking care of her. You realize that if you divorced her, you would no longer be responsible for those bills, right? So they were telling him to get a divorce basically. And he said, no way, right? He said, I had made my vows to stay together for good and bad in sickness and in health. He recognized I committed to this person in the comprehensive way that Dr. Lee's book says is definitive of, of marriage, and he was going to stick with that, regardless of the difficulties. And, and Cricket, likewise, right? she, it was even more difficult for her because she really had no feelings for this man, didn't even know him, but she realized I am the same person that I was. I am the same person who made those vows, and although I never foresaw that I would lose all my memories of what happened, and have brain damage that would also change my personality in certain ways, she still realized I am that person and so I am bound by that commitment. And so she and he together realized that given that commitment that they had made, they had a reason to try to make this work out. They went to a marriage counselor, Uh, on that counselor's advice, they began to go out on dates, they even had a second wedding ceremony and a second honeymoon so that then, Cricket could begin to develop shared memories and get to know Kim and fall in love with him again, but she made it very clear that while, indeed, she did come to love him, you know the kind of fuzzy infatuation feelings, the fuzzy feelings that everybody kind of loves to think about when they think about falling in love, well, those never came back, she said, but rather, I made a choice to love him. Again, she recognized she had made this commitment and that that commitment gave her reasons to foster the feelings that were in line with that commitment, rather than leading with the feelings, which is the the way the adult emotional satisfaction view of marriage works. So you know, spelling out again the features of this, this is just, I'll go through it quickly, it's just a review of what Dr. Lee already mentioned, but it's necessary for the legal argument, because again, you need to know what marriage is to know what marriage equality requires. So in understanding marriage as a conjugal union, and you can think of it uh, in, as defined in, by three sets of things, in a sense. Any community can be known by looking at its distinctive act, uh, the distinctive goods toward which it aims, and the distinctive norms that are required in order to achieve the goods proper to the community. So first, the distinctive act. Well, the act that distinguishes marriage from all other relationships is marital sexual intercourse, which is a uniquely comprehensive sort of act, because it's uniquely the kind of act that can, when done with the proper intentions, unite all dimensions of the person, mind, heart, and body. And again, this is uniquely made possible by by sexual complementarity, and even when the couple is infertile, and I'll get to that in a bit more detail later. And so it's Only with respect to the reproductive system, as Dr. Lee mentioned, that this is possible because only with respect to that bodily system are we one half of an organism. The, The relevant organic unit with regard to the reproductive system for human beings is not the individual organism, but the mated pair. And so it's only with regard to sexual complementarity that it's physically possible for us to become literally biologically one with another human being. And so that also helps us to understand that this union is distinctive insofar as it's ordered to a comprehensive good because the comprehensive act that seals the union is one that is inherently oriented toward procreation. And that is a comprehensive good because you're not just aiming at this or that aspect of human well-being, but you're aiming at the procreation and raising of whole new human persons who can enjoy human well-being in all of its various dimensions. And then lastly, it demands comprehensive norms, a comprehensive commitment, because of the comprehensive nature of the union and of the goods toward which that union is aimed. So it calls for a broad sharing of life, including living together, in a way that is unique to marriage. I mean, friendships can be very deep, very important, but nobody ever thinks that as a feature of friendship it's required that friends live together, occasionally it happens, but that's, again, never never seen to be, never has been seen to be a, a normative requirement of friendship, that you ought to share the same household. And then marriage likewise calls for comprehensiveness with regard to the act that distinctively seals it, which is sexual intercourse. And so it calls for sexual exclusivity, which is comprehensiveness at every time and permanence, which is comprehensiveness over time, right? Comprehensiveness for the life of the organism. So in trying to understand which of these competing views is the true view, because that's really what's at issue when we're asking what marriage equality is and what equal protection of the laws requires in this regard, it's helpful then to look at some challenges to the sexual domestic partnership view, which is the view that is enshrined in Kennedy's decision, right? Kennedy's decision in Obergefell is basically um, presuming the truth of the sexual domestic partnership view of marriage. So uh, I don't know why they're coming in opposite order, but anyway. So first is that um, the sexual domestic partnership view can't distinguish marriage from friendship Secondly, it can't account for norms of monogamy and permanence. And third, it can't account for any state interest in recognizing or regulating marriage. So first, it can't, under, it can't account for what makes marriage special. If you hold the sexual-domestic partnership view, you really can't differentiate marriage from friendship. So on this view, basically, marriage is special, well, because it's your, your spouse is your number one friend. But again, that's the difference in degree not a difference in kind from your other friendships. Some people will say, well, it's special because it involves sex, because it's romantic. And you say, well, sex also can't really explain that difference in kind either, because on this view, sex is only instrumental to pleasure or showing affection. And everybody understands and and recognizes that you can be in a sexual relationship without being married. So that can't explain the difference in kind. On the conjugal view, it's very clear what makes marriage special. Conjugal marriage is uniquely comprehensive. As I said before, it unites people comprehensively in mind, heart, and body, and is inherently oriented to a comprehensive good, new human beings. And therefore conjugal marriage differs in type, not just degree, from the union of hearts and minds that constitutes friendship. So on that point, right, what makes marriage special, the conjugal view can explain it, the sexual domestic partnership view cannot. What about the norms of monogamy and permanence, which most people still, though not all, uh, agree are part of the marriage package and ought to be legally. Again, this is already being challenged legally and in public opinion, but still, it's the majority view. So on this sexual domestic partnership view, you can have monogamy or permanence if you want them, but they're not required. Uh, Dan Savage, a very prominent uh, activist for same-sex marriage in an article in the New York Times a number of years ago, promoted what he called monogamish relationships. So he was explaining that within the homosexual community, really monogamy is not an ideal at all. In fact, often there are sort of a primary partner, you know, the one that you sort of share a life with more broadly, but then it's a sexually open relationship. And he promoted this as something from which the heterosexuals could learn because he said it, it helps to avoid all sorts of jealousy and nastiness, and it's much more interesting. You have more variety in your sexual life. Why limit it to one? It didn't seem to make sense to him. So he thought this was a good thing that he was promoting, and he's not alone. There are many others who have defended a similar view. There's also a statement that you can find on the internet beyond same-sex marriage in which 300-plus scholars have uh, noted, have said that they think same-sex marriage is just the first step toward recognizing any type of caring relationship as marriage, including polyamory. And in fact, I think it was the day of or the day after the Obergefell decision, an article in Politico, uh, again, sort of not a fringe uh, publication, said, okay, Time for polygamy or time for polyamory. Right? That, that would be the next logical step. And even prior, the uh, the Windsor decision a couple of years earlier, on the basis of that decision, shortly after that, in Utah, there was a case that came up regarding the criminalization criminalization of polygamy. And on the basis of the precedent set in the Windsor decision, the Utah court said well, I don't see how we can uphold a, a criminalization on polygamy given what was said in the Winter decision. And so they, uh, they overturned that criminal law against polygamy in Utah. And so, you know, you can see that already there's a legal precedent there uh, to, to require polyamory. And I don't see, with the current precedents that exist, I don't see how our law could deny an equal protection claim from a polyamorous uh, unit, I don't even know what to call them, (laughs) uh, that comes and says they want their union to be recognized legally as a marriage. And the conjugal view, on the other hand, monogamy and permanence, as I mentioned before, are called for due to the comprehensiveness of the union and its intrinsic orientation to childbearing and childrearing. Again, so the conjugal view makes sense of these norms in a way that the sexual domestic partnership view can't, even if it wanted to, which it increasingly no longer wants to and then lastly the question of state recognition the sexual domestic partnership view has a really hard time actually explaining why the state should recognize their relationship so basically the point there is that some people want state recognition right it was as was mentioned before it's really about public approval but that's not never been a good enough argument to get the law involved in private relationships in fact usually the the presupposition is that the law will stay out of a private relationship. You know, even if I have a really important friendship and I would like a legal certificate, sort of announcing that friendship to the world and giving me certain benefits as a result of it or, or simply publicly honoring that friendship, well, that, that's just not the state's business. And, and generally, we want the state to stay out of our private lives and out of regulating our private relationships so that we can enter and exit them as we, as we want. So the sexual-domestic partnership, you really can't explain uh, why the state should get involved in the marriage business at all. There's the question, of course, of the practical needs of people who share a household or are in relationships of, of dependency, but that has nothing to do with marriage per se, because you have plenty of people who share a household or in relationships of domestic dependency who are not married, the elderly widowed sisters, the... Order of nuns, right? There are plenty of of arrangements in which it would help to have a kind of package of benefits that go with, that are required by practical needs. But that, again, could be arranged for, could be taken care of in laws that are neutral, that have nothing to do with marriage, that are simply about practical needs of people who share a household. On the other hand, the comprehensive union view makes perfect sense of why the state should recognize and regulate marriage as, indeed, historically, in every society, it always has. And uh, here I want to highlight, I think, something uh, importantly uh, different, or at least that's emphasized more in Dr. Lee's book uh, than in other places, which is that the state's interest in regulating marriage is not only due to the fact that marriage has an intrinsic orientation to procreation. It is for that reason. But not only, right? There's a there's a broader and more fundamental reason in, uh, according to, to Dr. Lee, that the state has this interest, which is that the state has the obligation to promote, or at least not to, to distort or obscure, the truth about marriage in its laws. And this, I think, is something important, and that shouldn't be lost. It's also true, however, that the state is interested in marriage because the state wants to ensure that as many children as possible are raised by their own mom and dad. So marriage, as is noted in the book, brings together men and women to be mother and father to whatever children their union may produce. And social science abundantly indicates that the intact biological family, um, the family with married biological parents, and the children that are the fruit of that union is the gold standard for children's well-being. Um, I'm not going to get into the social science here, but um, there are plenty, there's plenty of evidence on that um, to show that, and I've got plenty of slides if anybody wants to ask in the Q&A. But, but let's look at the infertile couple question, which is typically the, seen as the strongest counterargument to the view that I've just presented. Now, some people will say, okay, well, if that's why the state's interested in Marriage, why the state regulates and recognizes marriage. Well, what about infertile couples? Why isn't a same-sex couple just like an infertile couple in that regard? And the differences are, are many. And the most important one is that infertile couples are capable of true marriage. They can have a true union of mind, heart, and body. Now, let me spell that out a little bit more. So bodily union means joint bodily coordination toward a single bodily end. Any union just means joint coordination toward a single end. Um, And so a bodily union will be joint bodily coordination toward a single bodily end. Bodily union, as I've already explained, is achieved in sexual intercourse, which is the behavioral part of the reproductive process. And it is achieved even if non-behavioral factors prevent Conception, as is the case, in fact, in most of the marital acts of fertile couples as well. Uh, It's only occasionally that a marital act, even of a fertile couple, actually results in, in procreation. And so what marriage requires is real bodily union achieved through intercourse and engaged in with the intention of expressing and actualizing that comprehensive commitment and so an infertile couple can do that. An infertile couple can unite bodily through intercourse with the right intentions. Therefore, a marital, an infertile couple is capable of marriage. And you could think of an analogy of, of other kinds of unions, right? So imagine a union that's centered on a kind of academic project uh, two professors co-authoring a, a paper and, or, or trying to figure out a solution to a problem in physics or in philosophy. Well, they, have a union if they are indeed coordinating toward that joint end, even if they don't solve the problem or even if the paper doesn't get published. So solving the problem would be the fruition of that cooperation of that union, but it doesn't mean that you don't have a true union, that you're not truly coordinating toward a joint end uh, in the pursuit of truth or publication of a paper if that further fruition doesn't come about. Um, The objection that's often made here and that is uh, voiced by Koppelman uh, in the book, is that engaging in intercourse when you know you're infertile is like shooting a gun that you know is not loaded. And a crucial distinction needs to be made here, which uh, um, Lee and George explained in the book, which is the distinction between artificial actions, actions that have their function by human choice, shooting a gun is an example of such an artificial action, versus natural or biological acts, which have their functions from nature. Um, The functions of my digestive system are what they are regardless of my choice, right? Or of my respiratory system and also of my reproductive system. And, And so once we have that distinction in place, we can understand that coitus, sexual intercourse of a reproductive type, is the first step in the complex biological process of reproduction, and as such, it is biologically oriented to, proc- to procreation, to reproduction, whether or not the non-behavioral conditions of reproduction obtain, whether or not the sperm count is high enough or the woman has the hormonal situation that would be necessary for the ability to actually conceive. Uh, another typical uh, objection is, well, okay, but even if it's a true marriage, what's the state's interest in recognizing An infertile marriage and again here I want to reiterate that I think uh, Lee and George's view is particularly strong on this because they emphasize that the state has an obligation to promote the truth about marriage that's part of the state's job and promoting the truth about marriage includes promoting the truth that marriage is not an instrumental good it's not a mere means toward procreation Uh, but that marriage, as a comprehensive union of persons, is choice-worthy in itself, even if you know that you will not be able to have children. And so promoting that truth in law is also a way of supporting a strong marriage culture by, in fact, showing that marriage is valuable in itself, not only as a means to procreation. Secondly, public policy laws in general consider the big picture and are based on the kind of normal case, the focal case, not the exceptional cases, which would be the cases of infertile couples. Every child has a mother and a father, even if not every marriage produces children. And so the law wants to make sure that when men and women do get together and do end up having a child, on purpose or not, that that, that they do so in a situation in which they're well prepared to raise that child, i.e. the situation of the committed long-term union, which is marriage. There's also a fairness argument here that uh, if the marriage of an infertile couple really is a marriage, just as much as the marriage of a fertile couple, then it would in fact be unfair uh, not to treat them equally in the law. And lastly, a kind of privacy concern, right? Determining fertility as a prerequisite for marriage would usually invade privacy and could often be mistaken. So a last objection here is that people will often say, doesn't enshrining the conjugal union view of marriage in law involve discrimination against those with same-sex attraction? And they often make the analogy between laws upholding conjugal marriage and laws forbidding interracial marriage. That analogy is prominent also in Kennedy's majority opinion in Obergefell and prominent in a way that's, that's uh, completely mistaken in, in a number of ways. But the key point here is that laws upholding conjugal marriage really have nothing in common with laws forbidding interracial marriage. Interracial marriage clearly is marriage, and no one ever claimed that it wasn't. That was never part of the rationale for the criminalization of irracial marriage. And in fact, I think it's worth noting here that uh, another disanalogy, an uh, aspect of the the fact that these are different situations is that interracial marriage was actually illegal, as in you could be fined or put in jail for it. Whereas prior to Obergefell, same-sex marriage was not illegal. It simply did not get legal recognition. Right. So prior to Obergefell in any state in the U.S., uh, a same-sex couple could have a ceremony, even have a ceremony in a religious fashion with a minister who was in favor of same-sex marriage, could invite their friends, could publicly hold themselves out as married, live together, and would never fear any kind of punishment or fine, or what, which is completely different from the situation of a, a, a couple of mixed race in the era of anti-miscegenation laws, of those laws against interracial marriage. So again, that's a, a crucial difference as well between the two cases. So banning interracial marriage was about keeping the races separate and was clearly an anomaly in history and culture, whereas conjugal marriage laws uh, were never about keeping anybody separate um, and have been constant, basically, throughout history and culture. Nor have conjugal marriage laws ever been based on prejudice. In fact, cultures that accepted homoeroticism, like ancient Greece, still recognized marriage as something different that required a special legal status. And thinkers uh, outside of and prior to the Judeo-Christian tradition, independent of the Judeo-Christian tradition, understood marriage essentially as a conjugal union. They didn't spell it out as fully as Lee and George have in their book, but nonetheless that same essential view is there in thinkers like Aristophanes, sorry, Aristotle, Xenophanes, Musonius Rufus, Plutarch, and, and so on. So you also can't say that this is the imposition of a religious view, another kind of red herring in the debate so you know in conclusion i think the point here is we are all in fact in favor of marriage equality right we uh, want to defend true marriage equality which require which requires treating all conjugal unions equally in law and in this sense obergefell was a great blow to marriage equality because now our law treats non-conjugal partnerships as equivalent to conjugal unions which is um, false but some might say well what's the harm of this, why not? Uh, And here, again, briefly, uh, why the law, why it's so important for the law to uphold the truth about marriage, or at least not to distort it. And that is that law exists to promote the common good understood as the set of conditions that facilitates the flourishing of all members of society. And it does this, first of all, directly, right, by what laws require, uh, what they forbid, or what they encourage, right? Laws prevent people from doing things, require people, or discourage things, but laws also educate. And this is a very important function of law that is often overlooked. And so what happens when laws get marriage wrong? Well, we see this, we've already seen it happen. The redefinition of marriage that began with no-fault divorce laws and government promotion of contraception actually began the shift to the sexual domestic partnership view and have set the stage for what we've seen happen um, just this past June. Obergefell in a sense completes the shift effectively abolishing genuine marriage as a legal category. No-fault divorce sends the message that marriage isn't really permanent. Contraception severs the link between sex, marriage, and babies, and the results of that have been sharp increase increases in divorce rates, out of wedlock pregnancies, declining marriage rates, and increased cohabitation rates, and the results of the results have been enormous suffering uh, due to family breakdown, suffering to the spouses, harm to the children, increased overall poverty, increased inequality and bigger government. There are statistics in droves to, to support all of that, but, um, but that's the summary of, of the harm, uh, and, and one could go on. So where do we go from here? Um, Lee and George suggest uh, in a a way that I think is really important to emphasize that this debate and the uh, fight in our culture to um, bring marriage back to a healthy state uh, insofar as is possible is not really about same-sex marriage, but is much broader. Uh, And so they suggest uh, some sensible reforms to divorce law that could help bring things into the right direction, for instance, waiting periods for mutually consensual divorce that could help couples think things through, get counseling and so on. Very often if people simply have to wait a while, they'll realize, they'll, they'll kind of get over the midlife crisis or the specific issues that are uh, creating problems and they'll realize that um, in fact, they are indeed compatible and, and can make it work out. And then in cases where divorce is unilateral, where only one of the parties wants it, that that would be available, allowed only for grave reasons, things like adultery and, and so on. Um, and then you know other things that, that we can all do, stay informed and work to promote um, and defend the true understanding of marriage in our culture, publicly, through petitions, emails, letters to the editor, uh, socially, right, and not being afraid to speak up among family, friends and colleagues and use the social media. Uh, in order to promote this view, uh, it's, it requires courage to do so in the current climate, but it's extremely important not to be cowed by the, the current um, environment and sort of uh, lack of tolerance toward defenders of genuine marriage. And very importantly as well, to show the beauty and possibility of genuine marriage and healthy courtship through example. And then lastly to stand up for religious freedom and parental rights in education to ensure that we can live in accordance with our beliefs and also pass on the truth about marriage to the next generation. Thank you. Faith and Reason podcasts. New media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com.